Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 189, The Unfinished Business of the Reformation. For this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I recommend that you check out the video version, which is on YouTube. Of course, that's linked from the blog post for this podcast episode. You can, of course, listen to the audio-only version, although there might be a few points at which you don't follow the point unless you're looking at the slides. And you're going to hear the actual audio from my talk presented on May 26, 2017. It was at a conference entitled Trinitarian Theology, Confirmation or Transformation of Classical Theism. And it was hosted at the University of Augsburg in Bavaria, Germany. The organizers asked me to speak on the topic Christian Unitarianism as a discussion of the Trinity from the viewpoint of philosophy of religion. My actual chosen title was the Unfinished Business of the Reformation, the New Testament versus Catholic Traditions on the One God. The organizers and hosts of the conference were two Roman Catholic scholars, one philosopher and one theologian. I thanked them at the beginning of the talk here. They were generous and welcoming, and they invited me because they wanted to hear a different point of view. So I was really delighted to be there and to interact with all the people at the conference. I spoke to a room of I would say between 70 and 100 people. I would guess that at least two-thirds of them were Roman Catholics, although there were definitely Protestants there as well, and I think at least one Eastern Orthodox scholar. They were interested in what I had to say, and they had a lot of questions and objections afterwards. I'm not going to present those here because I didn't ask people's permission to record and present them, and also in some cases the audio didn't come out all that well. So without further ado, here's my talk. Hello, thank you. I'd first like to thank the conference uh, organizers, Dr. Marshler and Dr. Shartle, for their kind invitation and for all their hard work in putting this conference together. Also, the many students that have had a hand in that. My name is Dale Tuggy, and my title is The Unfinished Business of the Reformation, the New Testament versus Small C Catholic Traditions on the One God. Just a little bit of context and background. I was raised as a Protestant evangelical in America. Honestly, I didn't think very much about the Trinity. I got interested in it when I was a graduate student. And uh, analytic philosophers have done a lot of things to try to show how the Trinity is self-consistent, to show that it's coherent, that it's not contradictory to itself. And I studied all those theories. There's too many of them. They contradict each other. And I studied different approaches to the Trinity, past and present. Eventually, this drove me back to looking at the Bible. And when I looked more closely at the Bible, I changed from a Trinitarian Christian to a Unitarian Christian. And I'm not going to talk really about the different Trinity theories. I would just say this by way of background. You'll notice that there's nothing in my talk of metaphysics. I don't think metaphysics is going to solve the problem of the Trinity and monotheism. I take the, you could say, extreme Protestant view that you have to go back to the sources and that will solve the problem. So no metaphysics. 
And there's really nothing original here. It's just the style in which I'm presenting this argument. Okay, so there isn't one Trinity theology. What there is is standard Trinity language that was enforced at a certain point in Christian history. And people try to make sense of that language the best they can. And so I talk about different Trinity theories, different interpretations of the standard language. But the one thing that any Trinitarian theology has to do is it has to identify the one God with the Trinity. The one God is the three of them together. When I say identify, I mean numerically identify. At this conference, it's been called Leibnizian identity. Others call it absolute identity. In modern logic, they use the equal sign for it. What is the one God? It's the Trinity. If you agree with that, you're a Trinitarian. The Unitarian Christian is someone who thinks that the one God is the Father. And so that's the difference. So here's an argument. It's a very basic, simple argument. I'm going to spend most of the time of my presentation talking about premise two, but let me just run you through it. Premise one says, any Trinity doctrine identifies the one true God with the Trinity. That's just true by definition for talking about really Trinitarian theology. Premise two says a central New Testament teaching is the identity of the one true God with the Father only. That's the premise I'm going to focus on arguing for in this presentation. Here's another premise. It's not true that the Trinity is identical with the Father and vice versa. This is a premise I think that any Christian should accept. If you're a Unitarian, you don't think that there is a Trinity, and you're going to say that that's not true, that identity statement. If you're a Trinitarian, you're going to say that there are differences between the Trinity and the Father. The Trinity is tripersonal or triune. The Father is not triune. Okay, well then we can't be talking about one and the same thing. If there are differences between some A and some B, then A is not B and B is not A. We're talking about two things, not one. All right, this, this is a self-evident principle. So I think any Christian should agree with three, and anyone should agree with one, because it's true by definition. Okay, but then from one through three, it follows that either any Trinity doctrine is false, or a central New Testament teaching is false. That seems like kind of a difficult dilemma, doesn't it? Okay, here's the Protestant part. If a later Catholic teaching contradicts the central New Testament teaching, Christians should reject the former, the later teaching, and accept the latter. In other words, Christians should prefer the New Testament to later tradition if the two clash. And my claim is that they do clash. This is something I didn't used to think. I was told by theologians and by apologists that the doctrine of the Trinity is logically implied by what's in the New Testament. It's not explicitly said there. There isn't enough language to explicitly say the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, but I was taught that it's clearly implied by what is there. I now think that's a mistake. I think the New Testament clearly implies something that's incompatible with any Trinity theory. So my conclusion is Christians should agree with the New Testament teaching that the Father alone just is God. In other words, is numerically identical to God and deny the later Catholic teaching that God just is the Trinity. When I say Catholic with a small c, I'm just referring to the mainstream of Catholics and Protestants, which accept the ecumenical councils, or at least the first four. Protestants aren't so sure what they think of 5, 6, and 7, and sometimes they're a little mushy on that topic. <laughs> I think the Catholic people are agreeing with me now. My perspective is like what historians call Christians of the Radical Reformation, people like some of the Anabaptists. 
Although I, I don't think this is a modern thesis. I deny that there's anything modern about it. As I said, there's no metaphysics here, no Cartesian metaphysics, no any kind of metaphysics. It's just using the basic concept of identity and just obvious logical inferences. These are things that people could understand in ancient times. And in fact, I think Christians of the first three centuries would have agreed with my premise too, that the one God just is the Father. Okay, so here are three competing hypotheses about the New Testament authors. U stands for Unitarian. This is the view that all or most of the New Testament authors everywhere assume that the one God just is the Father alone. T for Trinitarian. All or most of the New Testament authors everywhere assume that the one God just is the Trinity. That's what I was taught. Here's a little bit more subtle view. C for confused. <laughs> All or most of the New Testament authors are confused. That is, sometimes they think God just as the Father. They're thinking like Jews. They've been mixed up. Their world's been turned over by the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. And now they're, they're kind of rethinking things, but they don't have the adequate language yet to really express Trinitarian theology. That's C. This is what some theologians will say looking back at history. So I'm going to talk about how you can find a lot of evidence for you hypothesis U and against T and C. Now I'm going to use a type of reasoning that's from philosophy of science. This is discussed by Carnap. It's discussed by a lot of people. It's been used in philosophy of religion and philosophy of biology. It's one principle about theory confirmation, how to pick among competing hypotheses, competing explanations of an observation. It says for any observation O, and any two rival hypotheses, H1 and H2, which are supposed to explain O, if the likelihood of O on the assumption of H1 is greater than the likelihood of O on the assumption of H2, then O confirms H1 over H2. So very roughly, if O is expected, or if it's not surprising on one hypothesis, and it is surprising on another hypothesis, then this observation that we're talking about confirms the first over the second. Now there's more to theory confirmation than this. It could be that the current observation confirms H1 over H2, and yet H2 is overall better. That can happen because this isn't the only way that you compare theories. For instance, you compare them for simplicity, explanatory power, predictive power, and other things. I think it will help you understand this type of reasoning if I tell you a true story. So I grew up in Texas. Maybe you've heard of it. And when I was 18 years old, I went on a trip on a vacation skiing. And I went to Colorado, which is a beautiful state. It has the Rocky Mountains. That's our Alps. And a lot of Texans go to ski in Colorado. And I was on this ski lift looking at the glorious mountains and uh, the, the pine trees and the snow and just enjoying it. And then I looked down below far down below, and I saw some gigantic letters in the snow. And the letter said, Texans, go home. <laughs> okay, what's the explanation for this? Well, I could think of a couple of ways those letters could have got there. Hypothesis number one, some forest animals were running around. <laughs> Maybe a bear and a deer, a raccoon, I don't know. They were chasing one another, and they just made those letters. I mean, <laughs> another hypothesis is that there were one or two or three residents of Colorado 
and they think Texans are loud and annoying and Texans always brag that their state is the best one and they're tired of all the Texans infesting their nice state of Colorado. Okay, so hypothesis two is that some, some angry Coloradans did this. What I observed, Texans go home, would be very surprising if there were forest animals just chasing one another down there. Uh, and it would be just exactly what I would expect if some angry Coloradans were trying to send us a message, go home. That's an easy to judge case. I mean, the animal theory has other problems. But anyway, it's not what, it would be really shocking if it was animals, right? It would be very surprising given what I observed. Okay, so I'm going to go through 15 observations, which is a lot. And these are pretty much just facts. They're not theories. They're just things that you can open up the New Testament and observe. And my experience has been that a lot of Christian theologians, God bless them, they focus on their favorite passages, John 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 2, etc. And they, they sometimes don't stand back and look at the big picture. And when you look at the big picture... I think then you start to think that, oh, these authors think that the one God is the Father. And there are a lot of different signs of this. So I'm going to be going through things that are very surprising if they were Trinitarians or if they were confused. Uh, but they're not at all surprising if they were Unitarians. And it's not just one thing. Here's kind of an important thing. There's no evidence of any first century theological controversy about whether or not Christian teaching is truly monotheistic. You know, as opposed to polytheistic or tritheistic. This controversy doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in the New Testament. It doesn't happen in the first century. What were the controversies? Well, the big one in the New Testament, is Jesus really God's Messiah? Not everybody agreed on that. Those who agreed started to branch off from Judaism. Another controversy is Paul's claim that Gentiles can join the way without first observing the full Torah. That was a big controversy in the first century and in the second century. It may be in the third century. There's evidence of that, right? Paul combating other teachers, Judaizers, he calls them. But you don't find this controversy. Okay, so this observation is very surprising if indeed these are Trinitarians. If they're Trinitarians, their enemies would say, hey, you guys, you're not really monotheists, are you? Right? Just like they've been saying ever since at least the early 400s maybe the late 300s. It's a little bit surprising given the confusion thesis. It's not very surprising. Maybe they didn't express themselves very clearly, so their enemies didn't make that accusation. And it's just exactly what you'd expect given that they were Unitarians. And so by that prime principle of confirmation, this observation confirms U over T. And to a lesser degree, it confirms U over C. New Testament pattern of worship the main object of worship in the New Testament is the Father. However, the Son is also worshipped. You see this famously in Revelation chapter 4, they worship God. Chapter 5, the Lamb of God is brought into the throne room and they worship the two together for different reasons. They worship God because he's the one God. They worship the Lamb because of what he's done in serving God. It's kind of surprising that the Son is a secondary object of worship. Um, although there's also this idea, and this is in Philippians 2, that worship given to the Son or honor given to the Son goes to the God whose Son he is. He says it's to the glory of God the Father when every knee bows to Jesus in the future. So honor given to him goes through him and ends up with God. 
You never see the Holy Spirit worshipped. It's not an object of worship. You never see the Trinity as an object of worship. This is very surprising, this particular pattern, given T. It's somewhat surprising, given C. You would think maybe sometimes they would worship the Trinity, sometimes just one of the three. And it's just expected, given Unitarianism. person might object to that, but uh, I agree with the historian Larry Hurtado from the University of Edinburgh. He studied the first century Christianity and the New Testament extensively, and he says that the New Testament justification for worshiping Jesus is because God has exalted Jesus to his right hand. That's why they do it. They do it out of obedience to God. And I think that is their justification. I don't think they do it because they think he's God, he's the God-man, or that he has a divine nature. Okay, so then, by this principle of reasoning, this second observation confirms U over T, and to a lesser degree, U over C. Third observation, now this one's tricky. Uh, there are triadic passages in the New Testament, and I definitely think that you would expect these given Trinitarianism. Uh, it would make sense to refer to the, the three of them together, particularly one, two, three, Father, Son, Spirit. Now, if you're very generous, you know, if you're counting the whole paragraph or the whole page, you can get 117 triadic passages. The two most famous, I think, are probably these, the end of the Gospel according to Matthew, when he says, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and then maybe the end of 2 Corinthians when he gives them a blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. So these are definitely expected given T. No surprise here. The question is, are they a surprise given U or C? This is not obvious. If you're a Trinitarian, you might mention the three of them to try to give a hint that they're really one God, or that they're co-equal, or that they share the divine essence. That might be why you would do it, but there might be other reasons. When I think about these triadic passages, some of them are in narrative contexts. Some of them are invocations at the beginning or end of a letter. Some of them are in teaching passages. So in narrative action, you know, it's just God. The story of the New Testament is he sends his son, and then after the son goes to him, he sends his spirit. And so God works through his son and through his spirit. So, of course, it's going to mention the three of them. Invocation of blessings. Of course, often they're just in the name of the father and son alone. Very often they're not triadic. Teaching passages mention them, the three of them, for many reasons. One of those reasons is what I call unity slogans. Early Christianity didn't have institutional structure to give it unity. There were these churches all founded by different people, and it seems to have been a common practice of the apostles to emphasize that they all share one God, one Lord, that's Jesus, one Spirit, and all these other things as well in this famous passage. So I would say at most this third observation is mildly surprising given you. I think I'm being generous there. It's expected given T or C. So at most O3, this third observation, mildly or to a small degree confirms T over U. Okay, so put one score on the other side. Observation four, there's no New Testament term, which was at that time understood to refer to a tripersonal God. Sometimes the systematic theologians disagree, but the textual scholars say that God, 99% of the time or more, is the Father. 
in a small handful of passages, the Son, maybe in one, the Holy Spirit. This is very surprising, given T. If you tell me that there's a group of people that believe in a triune God, my very first question is, well, what do they call that triune God? And if you say nothing, it could be any word. It doesn't have to be Trinity. It could be a phrase, the three who are in heaven or something, or the triple God. I mean, make, make something up. They just have to have some way to refer to this triune God that they believe in. Okay, but that they don't have a word like that is something that strongly confirms you over T and even over C to a lesser degree. Fifth observation, closely related to the last, the New Testament usage of God is almost always the Father. You would expect if they were Trinitarians that sometimes God would mean the Trinity, or maybe they would spread it around sort of equally, or at least not so lopsidedly, where 99% of the time it's the Father. Uh, so it's, it's surprising that that's how they use the term theos and ha theos, God, uh, the God. Again, strong confirmation of U over T. Observation six, clear assertions that the Father is Jesus' God. Nobody in the Trinity should have a God over them, right? They're all God. God doesn't have a God. But the New Testament seven times explicitly says that the Father is the Son's God. And it has Jesus refer to my God. And once he says my God and your God, so your God and his God are the same God. And this is not what you would expect, given T. The Trinity shouldn't have a God. The members of the Trinity shouldn't have a God. That's what you would expect. So again, this confirms that they were assuming that the one God is the Father. Observation seven, use of God and something and God the something. Right, they don't say God the Son. They don't say God the Trinity. They don't say God the Spirit. Well, that's kind of surprising because Later Trinitarians do say those things. What they say very often, though, is God the Father. Again, surprising if they're Trinitarian, just what you'd expect if they're Unitarian. Somewhat less surprising if they're confused. More strong confirmation. New Testament usage of the Lord and the one Lord. This is a little bit complicated. So, as I'm sure you all know, in the Old Testament, in the Greek version, they don't want to say the name Yahweh, so they substitute the phrase, various phrases, but sometimes the Lord. In the New Testament, though, you seem to see a new usage of the Lord based on Psalm 110.1, where Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, so I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You would expect the one Lord to be the Trinity, but, you know, in Paul, there's the one God and there's also the one Lord, and the one Lord is Jesus. Of course, the term is ambiguous. Sometimes in the New Testament, the Lord means the one God, and sometimes it means Jesus. But uh, this does seem to confirm T. Observation 9. Mere man-compatible theses and big reveals. So a thesis is the author's main point. Sometimes they start with it, sometimes they end with it, sometimes they say it a bunch of times. But some books in the New Testament are very clear what their main thesis is. And when they tell you what that main thesis is, it's something that this guy would like. Right? So the original ending of John, the end of chapter 20, these things are all written. So you believe in the Trinity? No. So you believe Jesus is God? No. So you believe Jesus has two natures? No. So that you believe Jesus is the Messiah? 
God's anointed one, the, in other words, the Son of God, and so that you, you will get life through believing in his name. That's kind of surprising. That's not what you would expect to find as the thesis statement. It would be strange if John was constantly hinting that Jesus was God and then ends with this. It would be kind of an anticlimax. Right? And his main point occurs throughout the book. For instance, Martha, she recognizes who he really is. And she says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, he's recognized by others as well. Mark, the high point comes when Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And Peter, he's the one that always gets it first. He's the one who's the most bold. He always understands first. He says, you are the Messiah. Right. And that's what the high priest says in a hostile manner. That's what the Roman centurion says. Even a demon-possessed man says it. The very first verse starts off with a thesis as well. Same thing with Acts. For lack of time, I think you're familiar with these passages, but you know that he's, he's a man attested to you by God by deeds of power. That's Peter preaching the gospel in the earliest record of a Christian sermon. Observation 10, that God always takes singular personal words, so he's always a he, never a they. This may be a little bit surprising if they're Trinitarians. Of course, Trinitarians also refer to God as a he, at least most of them do most of the time. Sometimes they'll mix it up and uh, suggest that both are appropriate. So this is a small degree of confirmation for you over T. 11. I bet you didn't expect you were going to see this face today. I just wanted to make sure you were awake. So if you say, suppose you tell a story about Donald Trump or you write a news article, which I'm sure would be very friendly. You're not going to say Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that, Donald Trump, you know, every sentence is not going to have Donald Trump because that's not good style. You're going to say Donald Trump, Mr. Trump, the Donald, <laughs> the most embarrassing American president ever. You're going to change it. And then you'll go back to Donald Trump, right? You're going to change it around just because it's good style to do that. Okay. Well, this is what particularly John, but also other New Testament authors do with God and the Father. But they don't swap out the word Son and God or the word Spirit and God. So here you see John doing it in chapter 6. He uses God, then he says the Father, then he goes back to God. It's a common pattern you see. You also see it in uh, 1 John, which traditionally is ascribed to the same author as the fourth gospel. You can see the same thing happen occasionally in Acts and in the letter of James. Now, if you assume that God, that term God, and the Father, if you assume those are co-referring terms, two names for the same thing, this makes sense, then it won't be confusing. Just like the Donald refers to the same thing as President Donald Trump. One's less respectful than the other, right? but they refer to the same entity. Okay, well, this is a very surprising given to you that this pattern that they should switch God and Father but not switch around the other ones. This seems like good confirmation for you over T and to a lesser degree, you over C. This one's interesting. A uh, total lack of interest in the eternality of the Son and the Spirit. If you look closely at all of the passages that people cite, for instance, John 1, in the beginning, was the Word, okay, if you think the Word is the pre-human Jesus, then John just said that at the time of creation, the Logos already existed. 
But that's compatible with his having come into existence earlier. And the passages that seem to say that the pre-human Jesus created the world, that's compatible with his having come into existence just before then. Okay, so that's why when you had early Logos theory, people like Justin and Tertullian, they had a, what scholar, the scholar Wolfson calls a two-stage theory where the Logos comes into existence as a being in his own right, as an entity, sometime just before creation. They were reading these passages. They noticed that they didn't demand eternal existence or existence at all times. This would be very surprising if these are Trinitarians because Trinitarians always insist on the co-eternality of the Son and the Spirit with the Father. Okay, but they don't do that. So it seems to confirm you over T and to a lesser degree over C. Unqualified implications of limits on the Son. If these authors were Trinitarians, when they said that Jesus didn't know something, they would reassure you. They would say, well, but that was just his human nature. He lacked knowledge with respect to his human nature, but not with respect to his divine nature. Or if he seems to be lacking in power, it's okay, he's still divine. He's only lacking in power with respect to his human nature. No, there's no hints like this. There's no embarrassment even. The authors do not feel a need to reassure you about these things. Very surprising if they're Trinitarians. Not surprising if they're Unitarians. Because the Unitarians don't have to say that Jesus is omnipotent and omniscient, at least not essentially. Observation 14, endorsement, not criticism, of core Jewish theology. Trinitarians typically will say that Jewish theology, I mean, it's good as far as it goes, but it's, it's mere monotheism. It's leaving something very important out. It's too closed-minded or something. Well, you know, Jesus quotes the Shema in Mark chapter 12 in a conversation with a Jewish interlocutor, and he just quotes it. And presumably he understands it like his, his friend that he's talking to understands. He doesn't take time to correct it. Uh, well, Yahweh is one Lord, but you have to understand that the one Lord is multipersonal. He could have, but he doesn't. It's surprising. Now, is this consistent with the Trinity? All of these things are consistent with the Trinity. You could be a Trinitarian and agree with all of these observations. There's not a logical incompatibility. It's just that most of them are very surprising if these authors are Trinitarians. And they're not surprising if they're Unitarians. So they seem to be good evidence that these authors are Unitarians. One more. There seem to be clear implications for the identity of the one God with the Father. The Yahweh just is the Father himself. These are some of Unitarians' favorite passages. For the Father is the one who alone is God in John 5. John 17, 1 through 3, Jesus is praying to the Father. He calls the Father the one true God. Okay, well, that means the Father is true God. And then it means that nobody else is. Nothing else is. He's the only true God. We could symbolize this in modern logic. There are two claims. Again, that he's God, that no one else is. Well, that's just what Unitarians think. It's not what Trinitarians think. This is the passage that Augustine wonders in several places in his writings. He says, well, maybe the Arians corrupted this. Because clearly it should say that the Father and Son are the one true God. Or the Father and Son and Spirit are the one true God. Well, but you know, textual scholars don't think that 
anybody corrupted this. They think this is what the author of the fourth gospel wrote. Paul mentions one God, the Father, the God of our ancestors, that's Yahweh, is mentioned in Acts, and in the context, this is understood to be the Father. So again, strong confirmation of U over T. Many little pieces of evidence, they're really not disputable, right? And they all count for something. So it looks like we have this. This isn't all the evidence, right? This is the one I said, I don't know if this, this is really very unexpected. Uh, given, given you, that's the one of the triadic, the threefold passages. I gave that one to the T side, but yeah, it's kind of lopsided. Now, some people think this is obvious. They don't think it's worth arguing for. Sometimes a Roman Catholic philosopher or theologian will say, well, sure, they're not Trinitarian. What else is new? Who cares? Because it's taught by the teaching authority of the church. Protestants care a lot about, about this, though. Their ideology is that we base everything on the Bible, and we believe in the Trinity, so it must be in there somewhere. I don't think it is. I've looked very hard for it. I would have liked for it to be there. Okay, what about you versus the thesis of confusion, the hypothesis of confusion that these authors, they don't know what they think. They're trying to figure out how God is triune or something. They're rethinking their monotheism. It doesn't look like it. The degree of confirmation is stronger with U versus T than it is with U versus C. But still, there's all these different observed facts about these books that makes you think that the authors are probably assuming that the one God is the Father. So we put them all together. I mean, it looks like the New Testament books are Unitarian books. Again, I think this is what people like Origen, Tertullian, the Logos theorist, thought. They thought that the one God is the Father. When they were challenged on monotheism, they didn't say, well, we only have one trinity. They didn't say that. They didn't say there's only one divine essence, so monotheism. When they were challenged on whether they're monotheists, they emphasized the uniqueness of the Father. That's what a Unitarian does. And when they started to speculate about the Logos, famously, Justin Martyr calls him a second God. Origen says that the Logos and God are two in number. That's non-identical. That means that they're not one and the same thing. That's how they say it. Okay, so this is why I've changed my view. Thank you for your patience. Look forward to your questions. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.